Amen. Amen. Well, I want to um, thank the elders for this uh, gift of a sabbatical. It really is a gift. I don't at all feel entitled to it, uh, but I'm grateful. And I'm also grateful to Seth Trout, uh, who is going to be leading the way in a lot of the preaching while I'm gone. Uh, you're in very capable hands with him, as well as some of the other folks that are going to come and uh, preach. Josh Watt will be here at some point. Uh, some of you know him. Adam Bailey from Christ Church, so, as well as some of our other pastors. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful to Seth, really, for the last couple weeks. Uh, two weeks ago, um, I thought I was going to be able to preach on rest, and uh, I had bronchitis. And it was Friday that I let Seth know, hey man, I'm not actually going to be able to do it. And he was able to turn around uh, by, that next sun- by that Sunday and preach a great sermon on rest that you all probably thought, man, he had months to prepare that. And uh, he actually had hours. So he did that really well. Uh, and then last week I was, I was still recovering, but I was going to preach about uh, gender, right? That's what Seth looked at last week. As I was preparing it, I was like, Seth, my whole sermon's going to be basically quoting you. Uh, <laughs> Because a bunch of his doctoral dissertation was related to that. And I'm going, how about you just do it and I'll try to recover. And uh, he did that really faithfully and I'm grateful uh, for it. So um, I am preaching today Christianity and sexuality. Christianity and sex. When I was a kid, I didn't go to youth group much. But I went every time there was something about dating. (laughs) Because when you're a teenager, dating is the main thing on your mind. In, In today's culture, sex is the main thing on everybody's mind. I always think at the beginning of a sermon, how can I grab their attention and make them want to listen? I don't have to do that today. All I have to do is say, today's message is about Christianity and sex. And you're in. Some of you are nervous about that. Uh, By the way, if you're here uh, with kids, uh, elementary age in particular, and they're not really ready to hear a message about this, now would be a great time for you to check them into kids' ministry Uh, We'd love to do that. I've prepared this message really thinking about teenagers and adults in mind. And uh, this is continuing the series we've been in called Confronting Genesis. Each week we're looking at one of the early portions of the book of Genesis and how it connects with a major theme and issue that is still relevant in our world today. And so that's what we're looking at today. So let me give you a sense of where we're going with this message. This message will actually be somewhat uh, reversed of how I typically would preach. So typically, I'm going to spend a lot of time in the beginning working through the passage and then thinking about some big picture implications. Today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of flip that. So we're going to start thinking about some just initial considerations as we think about sex, and then we're going to look briefly at God's boundaries for sex, and then we're going to work through the passage. And what we're going to see in that passage is actually some key ingredients to actually have fulfilling sexual intimacy in a marriage. So that's how this is going to flow. You with me? All right, so uh, first, let's think of some initial considerations on sex. I think about our culture, and I think about the Bible, and I think about our theology as believers. What are some initial things to just have in mind as we talk about this issue related to sex? The first one is this. Sex is glorious. In the first service, there was a number of people who said, amen. Uh, So... Y'all are a little more repressed, I guess. I don't know what it is, but, but sex is glorious. Amen. Man, we're slow. We're slow learners here at the 10 o'clock. Uh, listen, man, you don't, need to, you don't even need a Bible to know that sex is glorious. Right? There are devout atheists in the throes of passion find themselves praising God with shouts of joy and pleasure. Sex is glorious. 
Sex is also high stakes. That's the second consideration. There's a lot at stake in it. Right? It's a bit like a fire. Right? A fire in the right context, in a stove, in a fireplace, provides warmth, it provides the opportunity for cooking, it provides the opportunity for incredible comfort. A fire raging in a forest, really destructive. Same thing. There's a lot at stake. Sex is this incredible thing that has incredible opportunities for for bonding people together. That's one of the reasons it's so high stake. In fact, uh, there's this hormone that uh, all of us have, women especially have, but, but men in particular, it's especially released through sex called oxytocin. It's this bonding hormone that bonds people together. It's, it's a hormone that's very present, especially for nursing mothers as they're bonding with their child. But uh, in men and in women, uh, oxytocin increases during sex and it spikes during orgasm. This is why when you have sex, you are bonded together with someone emotionally. Like not just in like, a, well, God says you're bonded, but like, no, you're actually, there's things happening between your bodies, not just in the sexual act, but in the hormones that are released that are bonding you together. That's a significant thing. That's high stakes. And we live in a culture that wants to say, no, nah, there's no high stakes. Sex is just animalistic instincts. It's just the same as appetites. You know, you got to eat, you got to have sex. There's nothing all that big to it. It's just... You know, it's just a bodily function. You got to do it. But you know what? Even our culture doesn't believe that that's true. You want a stark example of it? The penalty for sexual assault is much more severe than the penalty for assault. Why? Because we know that sex is a big deal. Because we know that when someone is sexually assaulted, what that does to their psyche, what that does to their overall well-being is much more traumatic and significant than someone who is merely assaulted. So we can say as a culture, ah, sex, it's no big deal. But we don't really believe that. Sex is glorious. Sex is high stakes. Number three, sex is more important than the world thinks. That might surprise you to hear me say that, but sex is more important than the world thinks because it's designed by God, it's sacred, it's holy, it's beautiful, it was designed by God to demonstrate giving, not taking, and it's designed by God in some way to image even God's relationship with us, right? In Ephesians 5, it says that Jesus is the true groom and his church is the bride. And so as we come together as a husband and wife, we are imaging the relationship between Christ and his church. It's sacred and this is important. It's more holy. It's more important than the world thinks, a world that wants to treat it very transactionally. And yet on the other hand, here's a consideration, sex is less important than the world thinks. I mean, you get this, gang, right? The world is so confused about this. They can't make up their mind, right? Is, is, is sex just, hey, it's no big deal. It's just two things that people do with their bodies, it's just something people do with their bodies. Or is it the basis for your core identity? Well, those feel like pretty different. The world can't sort this out, right? And what we want to say as Christians is that sexuality does not define us. We are not our sexual identity as our core identity. Our core identity is that we're connected to God, that we're a child of the Father, we're the bride of the Son, we're the home of the Holy Spirit. That's our identity, that's our pronouns, that's who we are, that's what makes us who we are. That's the key thing. And so the world that wants to say, no, 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 sexuality defines you, no. 
right? There's also this sense in the world that, you know, you can't truly be human unless you express your sexual desires. And here's what I want to tell you. That is a heresy. Because do you know who the most human person that ever lived was? Jesus Christ. And he never had sex. He was unmarried. He was sinless, which means he never had sex. No, Jesus gave that up. He gave up sex and he gave up earthly marriage to give his life for what sex and marriage represent, which is communion with us. So sex is more important than the world thinks. It's also less important than the world thinks. This isn't everything. This isn't your whole identity. This isn't your whole fulfillment. This isn't your whole being. This isn't your whole everything. And fifth consideration is that sex is created and directed by God. If God creates it, if God authors it, if God develops it, then God gets to decide how it's used, right? Uh, by the way, who's ready for the 2024 uh, election from hell is what I'm calling it. Uh, <laughs> everyone pumped, right? Like, yes, more of this. Well, here's what, here's, I guarantee some news story is going to happen this year is one of the candidates is going to at their rally use, uh, use a song from some artist and the artist is going to go, I didn't give you authorization to use my song at your dumb event. And uh, it'll be a whole thing, and it'll be like cancel culture, blah, blah, blah. But here's the reality. If you write a song, you do have the rights over how it gets distributed. If you create sex, you have the rights over how it's supposed to be used. Sex is created and directed by God. So that takes us next to God's boundaries for sex. God's boundaries for sex. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, uh, but it is important that we're clear about it. Here's what we believe as a church. This is part of our doctrinal statement, our what we believe statement. You can find this on our website. Uh, here's what it says, is that God intends sex to be only practiced within marriage and prohibits any sexual activity outside of this one man and one woman covenant, such as pornography, adultery, premarital sex, same-sex sexual activity, Etc. As followers of Jesus, we give our bodies to God, pursuing sexual fidelity as an avenue of faithfulness. I just want to be very upfront, very clear about that, that that's what we believe, it's what we've always believed, it's what we will always believe, is that marriage is between one man and one woman, and the only appropriate environment for sex to take place is in that covenant relationship. Now, uh, our bodies tell us the truth about that. Right, that was the big point of last week, is, is we were looking at gender. And by the way, gender is really just trying to say, here's what it is to be a man, here's what it is to be a woman, here's what it is to be masculine, here's what it is to be feminine. That's what Seth was looking at last week. This week we're talking about what does it look like in marriage, right? Those are a different thing, in, in sex and marriage. Uh, but, but listen, our bodies tell us the truth in both, right? That was Seth's big idea, is, is when it comes to whether you're male or female, the, your body tells you the truth, not what you think, not what you feel, not what your, you know, psychology says, but actually what your body says tells you the truth. Well, it's the same thing with who you should have sex with. Your anatomy tells you the truth about who you should have sex with. The male and female bodies anatomically were intended to go together. But not just anatomically, but actually hormonally. As I talked about the oxytocin, that bonding that takes place communicates that this isn't just that sex should be between men and women, but that it should actually be between one man and one woman bonding together physically and hormonally and relationally and spiritually. That's what we believe. Now, we've done a lot of different teaching about that over the years. And so in this series, I was kind of going like, well, man, am I going to do that again? 
And I thought, you know, I just did that a couple years ago. <laughs> so we did a series called Countercultural Convictions about sex. And I actually walked through Genesis 2, 18 to 25, and gave a really strong defense for why we believe that that statement I just read about the Christian sexual ethic is true and beautiful. So we talked about that. Um, and uh, we'll put, put links on social media today uh, to that message. If you struggle with wondering, like, is this really what the Bible says? Is that really true? We can link to that. The other message we'll link to is a message we did, uh, had a few years ago. A guy named Sam Albury was a guest preacher here. And uh, he had everyone on the edge of their seat at the beginning of his sermon when he said this. He said when he was 18 years old, there were two things he absolutely knew for sure. One is that he was totally committed to Jesus And two was that he was only attracted to other men. And what he does in the rest of that sermon is talks about how even though his sexual desires that he naturally has will never be fulfilled because he's chosen to live faithful and celibate as a Christian, that that is actually the most beautiful thing. And that the Christian sexual ethic isn't just true, but it's beautiful and good. So if you're interested in kind of the analysis of that. I'm going to recommend those resources and and send you that direction. But what I want to do is actually spend some time uh, helping, especially those of you who you're already convinced about that part, but you're going, but how do I actually experience intimacy in my marriage in a way that's actually fulfilling? What, what do I, what do I, how do I begin to do that? And so that's what we're going to look at in this last section is some key ingredients for fulfilling sexual intimacy in marriage. Now, I'm not here going to be talking about the mechanics, especially, of how to have a sexually intimate and physically fulfilling marriage. That's a different talk that uh, isn't for teenagers either. It's only for married folks, and uh, we could do that a different time. Uh, I, that's not what we're talking about. Um, what I want to do is, is explain the foundation, like the things that have to be in play for true sexual intimacy to even be an option. Okay, real quick though, let me give you a couple recommendations. If you're like, going, man, but I, I could actually use some help on the mechanics. Sex is painful. Sex is difficult. Sex is like not very enjoyable. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing. We've been at it a while and it's still like, eh. Okay, here's some resources for you. Dr. Julie Slattery has a website, authenticintimacy.com authenticintimacy.com, tons of resources, podcasts, books, articles, Julie Slattery, she's wonderful. Another is Dr. Cliff and Joyce Penner. Their website is uh, passionatecommitment.com. And again, they've spent a lifetime uh, putting together resources to help Christian couples just enjoy the physical part of sex and the relational part of it better. So those are some resources there. But what I wanna do is I wanna look at this text and say, okay, You can have physical sexual enjoyment without sexual intimacy, right? Intimacy is all about Genesis 2.25, one flesh. It's that sense that we're not just transactionally enjoying each other, but we're actually bonding ourselves together in a way that is like we're, we're close and we're one and we're in this thing together. And, and so what I want to look at is, is five key ingredients that if these things aren't there, you won't have sexual intimacy. If you have these five things, you still might not have sexual intimacy, but you'll at least be started. You'll be on your way, all right? Okay, here's the first thing. Get your Bible out, and uh, let's look together at Genesis 2. This is what we read a moment ago. It says in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good 
that the man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. We looked at this last week, and uh, Seth made a great point about this, and it's just important that you see, before there was ever sin in the world, there was something that wasn't good. And the thing that wasn't good, even before sin, was that man was alone. Now, a lot of times we misread this to think that God, the problem God had was that Adam was lonely. That's not the problem. The problem is that Adam's alone. Now, why is that a problem? Because God had given Adam a really big mission. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over every creeping, crawling thing. Right? That's, that's a job that is too big for one guy. So God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper. And this is this key word. And this is really uh, pretty cool. God doesn't make him a companion. There's other Hebrew words that, that mean companion. Right? He doesn't say, boy, it's a bad thing that Adam's alone. I'll make him a companion so he won't be lonely. No, God made him a helper who could contribute to the mission. Get this. God didn't make a cheerleader. God made a teammate. Right? Imagine if, if, if Eve is just companion, right? She's there going, be fruitful, multiply, oversee the things that fly. Go, Adam, you can do it. You got this, buddy. I love you, honey. Not helpful. And by the way, every man, I think, is blessed by having a cheerleader in his life. So I'm not against that. But that's not what's going on here. This is about a helper. This is about we got work to do. We got a mission to fulfill. We got a purpose to accomplish. And we can't do this alone. And here's what I want to tell you. The foundation for intimacy in marriage is a shared mission. We've got something to do together. We got something to accomplish together. We got something to be together. We have something to create together. We have something to cultivate together. We have something to pursue together. And if you're like, well, I don't know what that should be, then look at the Bible. Here's your mission. Help one another love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Here's your mission. Be part of making disciples and glorifying God in all the things that you do. Be part of taking the gifts and the experiences and the passions and the stuff that's just God has kind of baked into you as you are his workmanship. And now go do good works that give glory to God and that put him on display. You got a mission to do. A shared mission, this, this is key. And, and, and you can't settle for a small one. Like a lot of you, especially those of you with young kids, I know what you're thinking. You're like, I got a shared mission. It's called survival. <laughs> right? And I get it. Like the, the, the memes that Molly and I send to each other, I get it. Right? There's so many nights where we're like, is it really just 7.15? Gosh, it feels like midnight. Like what in the world? And so I get it. I totally get it. But here's what I want to tell you. That is too small. You want a mission? Here's a mission. You get to age well and prepare one another for eternity. Man, what a mission. You got kids? Great. Your mission's not just to survive. God calls those kids arrows. And your mission is to launch some sharp ones into the world. They're going to be agents of light and goodness and beauty. You got a mission to represent Jesus, to grow in love and joy and friendship and sacrifice and generosity and courage. If you forget that mission 
and you start to be distracted by other things, it's going to pull you away from each other. But if you remind yourself, yes, that's that mission, then you have at least the beginnings of the foundations of marital intimacy. Here's the second thing is you need mutual respect. We get to this in verse 22. In verse 19, uh, God starts this parade of animals, right? Uh, he, he, it's not like God's like, boy, maybe this will work. God knows how it's going to work. He wants Adam to appreciate it. And so he brings all these animals before him in verse 19, uh, all these things, and see, hey, will you name them? And uh, what do you think? Are any of these going to work? And it says in verse 20, he gave names to all of those. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Seth did a marvelous job last week explaining how this rib is not just taking this one bone out of Adam's side, but that it's actually taking his whole side. It's as though God split uh, this man who was one, he split him into two, and then when they come back together in sex, it, they're one flesh again. And, and it's significant. This is important. Where Eve was taken from, his side. The Hebrew rabbis reflected on this. They wrote this kind of axiom, this adage. He did not take her from Adam's head that she should rule over him. He did not take her from his foot that he should trample upon her, but from the rib that she might protect his heart. There's this complementariness. There's this side to side. Get this, inferiority or superiority are a path to resentment in your marriage not a path to intimacy. And, and one of you is not superior to the other. One of you is not inferior to the other. You are meant to be complementary side by side. Made differently, different strengths, different abilities, different uh, things that God has put together to correspond, but side to side. And so there might be some repentance needed here. You might need to repent of your sense of superiority because I'm not as needy as she is. You might need to repent of your sense of superiority because I'm not as out of touch with my emotions as he is. You might have to repent of your superiority because you bring home the money. You might have to repent of your inferiority because she brings home the money. That's not what it's about. This is not who's going to win in the battle of the sexes, Ken or Barbie. That's some of what, I don't know if you, a lot of you are too good to see that movie. I liked that movie a lot. <laughs> and the whole point of it was a world where, where one is superior over the other, neither one works. And the culture has no resources to figure out how to make it work. Total bankruptcy. And yet here's the Bible going, here's how it, is. Here's how it works, complementary, side by side. So here's the thing. You might need to repent of some superiority. There might be, need to be some repair that takes place where you don't just say, I'm sorry, but actually you need to prove that you're changing. 
and demonstrate that you're becoming more trustworthy, right? If there's, if there's a loss of respect that takes place over time, you don't just snap your fingers and rebuild it. So you might have to do some work to rebuild it, right? There's going to need to be some repentance. There's going to need to be some repair. There might need to be some reconciliation work that happens. You might need to see and bring in a counselor or a therapist. And if you need help with that, man, we would love to help you with that. We have folks part of our church and po- folks that are connected to our church. We could re- recommend lots of avenues for you to pursue repairing that mutual respect if you've lost it. But, but it's important to pursue it. Now, here's one more thing I need to say. If you're in an abusive situation, you respect your spouse by drawing clear boundaries and by getting help. You do not respect your spouse by continuing to let them abuse you. Now listen, they're going to tell you that if you let anyone know and that if you speak up and if you draw a hard line and if you would get outside help, that that is actually you lacking respect and you not being submissive. And here's what I want to tell you. That's a lie from the devil. And, and we have lots of help and resources here to help you walk through that. We'd love to help you in that process. Key ingredients for fulfilling sexual intimacy in marriage. First, the shared mission. Second, mutual respect. Third, gratitude to God. Gratitude to God. Verse 23. Verse 23, uh, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here we want to especially focus on this first phrase, this at last. In Hebrew, this means this is it. This is the one. This time it happened. Right? You just sort of imagine Adam going, elephant, aardvark, ostrich, camel, not it, not it, not it, not it. You know, he wakes up from the best nap he ever had, and God brings him naked Eve. This is it. <laughs> this is the one. Yes, you did it, God. Right? He's, he's, his, his first words to her are this, are this explosion of a love song. And really, it's not just about her. It's a praise to God. It's gratitude to God. And you say, well, but I don't, you know, this situation was different. You know, God really brought them together. Wait, wait, wait. Not so fast. Remember when Jesus was asked about marriage? you know one of the things he said? What God has brought together let no one separate. You're like, well, I don't know if God brought us together. He does weird things at bars, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know your story, and I don't know how it worked, and if I heard it, I might agree. Yeah, this sounds like an exception. But the Bible, <laughs> I stand on the authority of God and say what God has brought together. God brought you together. And, and so one of the reasons why you lose respect over time is because you stop noticing the things you should be grateful for. And you stop giving thanks. And so I just want to encourage you, like, this is God's gift to you. Begin to thank the Lord for her. Begin to thank the Lord for him. Begin to notice the bright spots. And they might be, you got, might got to look hard. But notice them. Thank the Lord for them. And, and try as best as you can to have your spouse be the standard of beauty and excellence in your mind and heart. 
I was really impacted by this when I was a young man. I uh, had this uh, pastor who was, you know, involved in, in training me, and he would always talk about how his wife, Jean, was, to his mind, she's the 10. She's the standard, right? Everyone always says, oh, my wife's the most beautiful woman in the world. But the way he would talk about it, he was like, no, I compare everyone else to her. I remember one time being on this road trip, and we, you know, we're riding down the highway, and you see this billboard that is like, this beautiful, scantily clad woman on this billboard. You can't miss it. Everyone, you know, on our like, group of Christian pastor trainees is trying to pretend we didn't see it. <laughs> and he just goes, nah, she's too skinny. <laughs> Her cheekbones are too high. She's not nearly as pretty as Jean. And that made an impact. This is it. This is the woman God gave you. This is the man God gave you. Thank him for it. It's a path to intimacy. All right, number four, key ingredient is leaving previous loyalties. This is verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This word leave means to leave behind, to let go, to give up. Right here, Moses is making a bit of like a, a, you know, up to this point, he's just telling the story. Now he's like making a little editor's comment for the reader and goes, hey, by the way, this is why we leave mom and dad now, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, leave behind, go away, not hold on to anymore, and instead shall hold fast to cling, to stick to, to cleave to his wife. It's a, it's a way of talking about leaving previous loyalties behind, the most important voice in your life used to be this person, these people, now it's your spouse. Now, get this, this is not, some of you are in a situation where you're caring for aging parents, that's not what this is talking about, right? That's, that's an honorable thing, that's, you're actually helping obey the, the Ten Commandments as you honor your father and your mother. We continue to need to honor our father and our mother, but they're not the most important voice in our life anymore. They're not the most important factor and a lot of people have an always invisible third wheel with them everywhere they go as they live in the shadow of their parents. Some, like this is not a problem at all. Some of you are like, man, verse 24, finally a verse in the Bible I obeyed. I'm so gone from my mother and father. Like, boy, are they not a factor in my life. Thank you, Lord. All right, some of you are that in that place. But you know what a lot of people do is they replace the parents as the most important priority with the kids. Every conversation and every date, there's always this third wheel. It's your kids. Or maybe it's your career, right? The point here is that anything at all, you've got you've to leave that priority behind and form a new bond, a new identity, right? I've, I've done so many weddings over, you know, and in all the weddings, there's all this imagery. I don't know if you've noticed this or paid attention, but this, there's all this imagery that is coming right out of verse 24, right? There's the unity candle, right? The unity candle. At the beginning of the ceremony, the mothers go up and they light the outside candles. During the ceremony, the couples go and they take those candles and they light together the unity candle and then if it's done right, they blow out the side candles. And it's a way of saying, hey, this new, this new thing, that's the thing that's holding us together now. 
right? Or, or there's unity sand. We get pink sand and turquoise sand and we pour it together, hopefully at the same rate, and it becomes ugly sand. <laughs> uh, or there's unity wine, right? I've seen the unity wine. There's the white wine and the red wine. They pour it together and it just looks like red wine. So if, you, if you're planning a wedding, skip that one. There's the braids, right? There's like the ropes. This one's kind of cool, right? There's three ropes. One represents one family and the other family. And the third one is God. We tie it together. A rope of three cords is not easily broken. Oh, it's, it's just all, it's all lovely. Listen, I'm not denigrating any of it. What I'm saying is we do that in our weddings because we're, we're saying this matters. We're forming something new and important. That loyalty to your spouse, that's a key part of having marital intimacy. And finally, number five, healing from your shame. This is not a one-time thing, gang. We got a lot of shame. We're different than Adam and Eve. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. To be ashamed here, this Hebrew word has the idea of a sense of confusion or embarrassment or dismay that occurs when matters turn out different than expected. They don't have that. Instead, they have full trust. Trust in God, no shame. Trust with one another. Right? This is the picture. Naked and not ashamed. Totally exposed. Totally seen. Totally vulnerable. And totally okay with it. And by the way, that is just not our experience. Not only are we all clothed today, but we're all very much afraid of being known and of being seen and of being vulnerable. And yet the picture of how God made us was that we would be without shame. Soon they're going to be hiding in the garden. Soon they're going to be covering themselves with fig leaves. Soon they're going to be blaming one another because they were disobedient. But right now they're naked and they're un. Ashamed. They aren't experiencing shame, but we do. Right? They do once they disobey God. Then they begin to hide, and then they begin to cover, and then they begin to blame, and then they begin to fight, and the world begins to unravel. That's what we're going to see through this series. And that's the world we know. That's the world we're comfortable with. We don't like it, but we're used to it. And gang, we've got to do something about our shame. You've got to know the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something that I shouldn't have. Shame is I'm unlovable. And uh, a lot of the block in our marriages is, is undealt with shame. Because if you're convinced I am at my core bad, and I am at my core unlovable, then you will constantly keep the other person at a distance. But if somehow something could begin to heal that shame, could begin to reduce that shame, could begin to make it where you actually feel comfortable in your own skin, and yeah, you realize you've got problems and you've got sin, but, but like you, you realize God is dealing with that and God is taking care of that and God is healing you through that and you can begin to actually give yourself again what would that look like how would you begin to begin to heal that shame 
Well, here, here's, here's one thing. First of all, stop making it worse. Right? Get this. The less you sin, the less shame you'll feel about it. Right? This is the cycle. Right? This is so much of what's going on uh, as people are using pornography, which is one of those sexual sins, is we feel a lack of connection and so therefore we feel unlovable. And so then we go to a place where it's easy to get some sort of a sense of affection through a nameless person that we don't know that looks exactly like our wildest dreams. And then we feel the shame after we indulge in that. And that shame makes us feel more unlovable and more unable to connect with our spouse. And it goes and it goes and it goes. And so here's what I'm telling you. If you will quit digging the hole you'll have less shame. <laughs> but you're still in a hole. So what do you do? And I realize I'm jumping ahead to Genesis 3, but I'm not going to be here, so hey, I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to go for it. Here's what I would talk about in a few months. When you get to Genesis 3, here's the, here's the good news, guys. God does something about it. God intervenes in this. God doesn't leave us in our shame. God does something about it. When you get to Genesis 3, in verse 21, after Adam and Eve have been covering themselves with these fig leaves, here's what it says. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God covers them through the substitutionary sacrifice of another. Right? Notice, he doesn't cover them with fur. He doesn't cover them with feathers. He covers them with skins. Right, this is like with your breakfast. The chicken's involved, the pig is committed. The, the, the animal to give it skins is losing its life. And it's the first picture of substitutionary sacrifice in the Bible that will culminate when the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, goes on the cross. And by the way, how is Jesus Christ crucified? Maybe you've never connected this dot. But they take all of his clothes before he goes. And the most shameful way a human being can die, according to the scriptures, is to be hung on a tree. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. How does Jesus die? Naked and ashamed. Why? So that you could be naked and unashamed. So that you could be restored to being human the way you were made to be. So that you could begin in marriage relationships and in other relationships to not be shackled by your shame. To not be shackled by your past. To not be shackled by your sins or your mistakes or the abuse that's happened to you. But instead to be set free by the Lamb of God who removes our sin and covers our shame. He's the true spouse. He's the ultimate groom. He not only risked his life, but he gave it to win and to cover the bride he loves. So don't stay in the pit. Don't stay in the hole. Reach out the hand and receive the gift of grace that comes through Christ. And what will happen is you'll begin to rebuild intimacy first with God. And he'll heal, and he'll heal, and he'll heal. And then there might be some setbacks, and then he'll heal some more. And little by little, you'll be able to open yourself up again. And actually have maybe the foundation to have a marriage 
that's fulfilling in intimacy, intimacy, one that actually starts to feel like one flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, for the gift of Christ and the sacrifice that he made. God, we pray that you would heal us, cleanse us, cover us, forgive us. And we thank you that you don't leave us in our shame. We pray in Christ's name.